0: Well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much, worship band, and a special thanks to Faith. Thanks, it was so great to have you up there singing. You gotta hear it for Faith. Great, so fun, so fun. Thank you, thank you for doing that. Um, about 30 years ago, I created a file, and I'm not making this up, Manila folder file, and on it I wrote, When Chris is King. Here's the, <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, this is real. I was a 20-something, 20-something leader, and I'd just gotten a job at this huge church. And everywhere I looked, I saw things that needed fixing. And I thought, if I just have the opportunity, I've got the answers. Well, I thought I had the answers, and all I needed was the opportunity. Well, that, that file didn't last too long for two reasons. Um, one of them is that I told a person named Joyce Heyer about the file. And uh, I've talked about Joyce before. On paper, Joyce reported to me, but in practice, she was my sister in Christ who was wise and she was discerning and she was godly and she was one of the few people back in my swagger days where, uh, where she could call me out and I would listen. So Joyce knew that I was just having some fun with that title, but she reminded me, even joking about that, it puts you on a slippery slope to some really bad places. So that was one of the reasons why I got rid of that file. The other reason is this, the more that I got promoted and the more that I spent time with senior pastors and the more that I actually studied what the scripture says about leadership, the less I wanted to be the one carrying that weight. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. It is a lot easier to identify problems than it is to solve them. Can I get an amen? It is so easy to go around saying, oh, here's what you need to do. In fact, one of the things that, is, that just brings me great joy is after a Vikings loss, that doesn't give me joy itself, but here's what, here's what makes me laugh, all right? When you get on Sports Talk right after a Vikings loss and all of these experts say, here's what you should have done and here's what the Vikings need to do. They need a new quarterback and a new offensive line and a new defensive line and new coaches, And you're like, oh, okay, and where are you going to find the new quarterback and the defensive line and the offensive line and the new coaches and how are you going to pay for that? You know, it's so much easier to identify the problems than it is to solve them. And that kind of thing happens every day, every day, all around us. People are constantly telling others what they need to do to fix things. Hey, politicians, if you adjust. Hey, coach, if you adjust. Hey, teacher, hey, principal, hey, supervisor, if you adjust, hey, mom, hey, dad, if you adjust when it's not that easy. I once heard somebody said, everyone wants to be president, no one wants to do president. I love that line because it's easier to identify problems and solve them. Here's another quote. Many in the room can relate to this one. Leadership is the art of disappointing people at the rate that they can stand. Isn't that true? Oh, okay, but now let's let's switch gears just a little bit. What about those times when there's something really wrong? What about those times when leaders aren't leading? What about those times when leaders aren't confronting things that they should confront? What about those times when people seem to be just turning their heads or even supporting something that isn't as it should be? There are times where then you start to feel that righteous anger, you know, stirring inside. And when we're not king, Scripture provides this warning. Why? Well, this applies to kings too. This is Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, it says, do not what? So it's possibly possible to be angry and not sin. It's possible. And that's one of the things we want to talk about today. That's the important conversation that we want to have today. If you're taking notes, here's something else I'd encourage you to write down. There is a big difference between righteous anger and unrighteous actions. Can I get an amen to that too? And how often do people blur the two? They feel like they have righteous anger, but what they do in response is not making it better. It makes it worse. It is possible, again, to be angry and not sin. There is a very, very, very slippery slope from feeling that righteous anger To then responding in unrighteous ways. Well, speaking of slippery slopes, back when I was that twenty-something leader, we used to take these our teens to something that we called back then also snow camp. And there was one year—I don't know if you were there that year—but there was Justin. But there was one year we had these cabins at this camp called Ironwood Springs. And there were these cabins up on a little bit of a hill, and then there was a little narrow path going down. Well, it was a snow camp, and there was a little stretch of ice on that path. And some of our guys were like, this is so fun. And they would slide down that little path. And they thought, you know what would make it more fun? More ice. So these knuckleheads found five-gallon buckets. And while while we weren't looking, they started pouring five-gallon buckets of water down this little narrow path. They perfectly iced the whole thing. Did they have more fun with more ice? Yes. Were there unintended consequences and collateral damage? Yes. Also, yes. Oh, man. If you were just joining us for this series, the summer series that we're in, we're taking a deeper look into a section of Scripture that is filled with cautionary tales. Filled with cautionary tales. And right now what we're doing is we're exploring 1 and 2 Samuel. And one of the things that we said coming into this teaching series is that we can either learn from the mistakes of others or we can repeat them. So in today's text, let's learn from this. In today's text, we have an excellent example of how to make things worse instead of better when you see things that aren't the way that you think they should be. So today we're going to talk about a man named Absalom. Absalom, and how his righteous anger turned toxic. Something horrible happened that was absolutely wrong, but the way that he continued to respond, it turned toxic. People get hurt when you empower Absaloms. People get hurt when you act like Absaloms, and hopefully today that and don't be an Absalom message is going to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, if you take a notes, let's start listing some traits of an Absalom. What are some of the things that we see? And the first thing I want to invite you to write down is they have an agenda. Now, is it wrong to have an agenda? Not necessarily. It depends what your agenda is and how you approach it, right? In Absalom's case, his father was King David. David had several wives, and one of Absalom's half-brothers abused Absalom's sister in a horrible way. Horrible. It's just tragic to read it. What his half-brother did was absolutely, positively awful. Awful. Horrific. And Absalom, understandably, wanted justice. But his father, the king, didn't act decisively. So two years later, Absalom took matters into his own hands, and he killed his half-brother. And once again, after seeing this, his father, the king, failed to act decisively. The only real action that he took was to ban Absalom from his presence. So, continue on. This is unresolved. Several years later, Absalom wants back in. He wants back into the power, back into the action, back into the position of authority. So, he reached out to Joab. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Joab was the commander of David's army. Joab just ghosts him, just doesn't even respond at all. So... What does Absalom do? Absalom sets some of his servants to go set fire to Job's field. So now Job shows up at Absalom's house going, What are you doing burning my field? And what does Absalom say? It's your fault. You didn't answer me. Here's another quality of an Absalom. If I should write this down too they're quick to blame, they are quick to blame. One of the signs that someone is sliding down that slippery slope towards becoming an Absalom is they start thinking their righteous anger gives them the right to burn it down. They can act like a king who has ultimate authority and can do whatever they want. And often, how often do you see this? There's a double standard. They want you to follow the rules that they like, but they feel free to break the rules that they don't like. We often see that. Well, instead of calling Absalom out, what does Joab do? He gives in. And he gets Absalom to be able to come back into the, to the king's circle. Ooh. Absalom still has a few restrictions, which now Absalom's starting to say, guess what? I can ignore these. I can ignore these. When you're dealing with an Absalom, you cannot reward negative behavior because what will happen? More negative behavior. All right, well, that's one of the reasons why Paul gave this instruction to the churches that he founded. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, what, is, what did Paul say? Have nothing more to do with them. All right, so let me show you some more of the characteristics of an Absalom, and let's just look right from the text itself. You can find all of these that we're giving you. We only just have so much time. So let's let's take a look here um, at at, at 2 Samuel 15, we'll start with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd invite you to go to Bible.com. You can download a great Bible app there. It's, uh, it's fantastic. All right, so I encourage you to read the, the whole First and Second Samuel, First and 2 Kings, your Chronicles. There's so much there. We're just going to take a look at this section. All right, so uh, 15 verse 1 says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. One one of the things that separates an Absalom from someone who just complains a lot is this, they attract followers. They attract followers. In chapter 14, we find out this piece of information about Absalom. This is from verse 25. Now in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as who? Absalom, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And this is pre-filters, people. (laughs) Pre-filters. Do do you see any any crossover between this and today's influencers? Right? They know how to get the look. And and what he's doing here with this self-promotion, what does he do? He gets the horses, the chariots, the runners. These are the things you do to to send the message, I'm king. So he has got self-promotion down. He's setting himself up to look like he is the rightful anointed one. Let's keep reading verses two through five. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when a man had a dispute Come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, Oh, from what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, Oh, see, your claims are good and right. There is no man, though, designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, hey, if only, if only I were judged in the land Oh, man, you'd be in great shape, because then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man would come near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, he'd take hold of him, and kiss him. Oh, man. Here are two more things that Absalom's do. They claim to have the answers, and they vilify those who disagree. Disagree. Absalom's sitting there by the city gate. Oh, if only. If only I were king. In an era of walled cities, anyone entering or leaving the city would pass through the, the gate. So, in that time and in that place, the city gate, that was the city center. And where did Absalom position himself? At the city center. He got himself the biggest platform he could find. He got himself in front of the cameras. And what did he do? He advanced his agenda, attracted more followers, blamed others, presented himself as, I'm the caring, servant-hearted champion of the people who's got all the answers. And then he began demonizing everyone who disagreed. King David doesn't get you, but I do. He said, and in verse 6, we get this statement. Absalom stole the hearts of Israel. In that time and in that place, the, the word that shows up here, the one that we translate as heart, it was more than that. It, it was your mind and your, 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 mind, your intellect and your emotions. It, it, was, it, was, it was you. Absalom stole it. Here's how one of my resources put it. If there was no real problem, Absalom created one. If the problem were real, he magnified it. None of this is happening today, right? (laughs) The saddest part of his whole routine is that there is no indication he was really interested in justice or that he cared for people. This is a classic example of a person who uses the talking of lofty ideals as a means of manipulating people and gaining power for himself. It has never been easier to target people's hearts and minds at the same time. We know how to do that. We know more about brain science than we ever have known at any other point in history. There is a section of your brain that you can target. And when you target it, your mind and your emotions are all jumbled up in that space. And so you think that you're thinking this through, but you're not. You're not using your thinking section. You're using this other section. I see this all the time. People want to win hearts and minds. It's how you sell stuff. It's how you get clicks. It's how you get that platform. It's how you get votes. So they target lower levels of the brain where the minds and emotions get blurred. It is incredibly effective and it is incredibly manipulative. After about four years of doing this, Absalom thought, I've got enough followers to make my move. So he asked his father for permission. He said, Dad, can I go to a place called Hebron? Can I go to Hebron? And I want to go there to, quote, keep a vow, and to, quote, offer worship to the Lord. And King David's answer, it, it, it is filled with a tragic irony because his father says, go in peace. He trusts him. Go in peace. Well, this is all part of a rebellion. Absalom positioned himself as an ally, but in reality, he was not acting in people's best interest. Absalom asked for permission to go to Hebron. Hebron has a lot of history. It's where David ruled as king before coming to Jerusalem, it's also where Absalom was born. If you're going to go start a rebellion, that is where you want to start it. Take a look at what the narrator adds in verses 11 through 12. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their what? They went in their innocence. They knew what? Raise your hand if you've ever seen innocent people get swept up in things. They often think I'm doing right. I, I think, I'm, I'm caught up in the emotion of this. I'm caught up in, in what, what seems like the right thing to do or, or where I should be or, or or the right side of history or whatever language they want to use. But the innocent people often get manipulated by Absaloms. They get swept up in a moment without really understanding what it is they're aligning themselves with. In fact, Jesus points this out in the cross, doesn't he? When he says, forgive them for they... Know not what they, what they do. David was far from perfect. Far from perfect, as all leaders are. But he was the best king they ever had. And he was the best king you read the rest of the kings. He was the best they were going to get. It's interesting how people can forget about David's when an Absalom does his or her thing. They can forget all about it. They can become captivated by the Absalom's image and ideals. All right, verse 12 says this, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Here's why this is so tragic. A final characteristic of Absalom is this, their means leads to predictive ends. You can see where this is going unless you're inside the movement. Following Absalom's does not end well. In this case, what began as righteous anger, it led to a nation getting torn apart. Several years ago, uh, Tim Stenerson, he volunteers as our Director of Leadership Development. He gave me this resource. It's, uh, it's called The Leadership Bible. And what it is, it's the NIV translation, but along the way, they point out different things. They go, this is a leadership lesson, this is a leadership lesson, this is a leadership lesson. This, this leadership Bible devotes two full pages to Absalom. Two full pages to this one character who only shows up in a small section of text. Here are some of the things that it says specifically about his passion. Because we want passion in our leaders, but you got to be careful with Passion. Here's what they say. Passion will find expression in either healthy or what? Unhealthy ways. People follow passion over orthodoxy, even when it's unwise. Unchanneled and unbridled passion does what? Damages everyone around. When passion outweighs wisdom, leaders sabotage themselves. And this is so true, passion without perspective brings death. Everywhere we look, every water cooler, every break room, every city gate, we find Absalom's. And on every major issue, on every major media platform, we find Absalom's too. And I am one of many who are highly concerned that the number of Absaloms seems to be multiplying exponentially. So here's our invitation to you. If you want to see more people focused on solutions rather than pushing agendas, here's a two-part invitation. How do we avoid icing that slippery slope? How do we, how do we not make it just worse than it already is? Number one, think twice before you like an Absalom. Think twice before you like them. What does that mean? Voting for them. It means literally liking them on social media. It means passing along quotes that, that in your anger sound great, but you're like, is this actually going to make it better or worse? Are you going to try to sway people, or are you just throwing red meat to the, to the base, Right? When we like Absaloms, we forward their links, we elect them to office, we give them platforms, we allow them to target sections of our brains where our thoughts and feelings get all jumbled up together. We like Absaloms, we reap what we sow. One of the only ways out of the mess we're in, as a culture, is for more people to respond more like this. I love this quote, out of, and I've used it before, out of uh, one of the Disney Plus things, the um, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Falcon said this, he goes, "'I'm not your enemy!' I In fact, I agree with your fight. I just can't get with the way that you're fighting it. In fact, the most effective um, uh, role you're going to have is with people whose camp you generally agree with. If you can say, hey, can we tone down the rhetoric and focus on the solution? You're going to have a lot more effectiveness in your camp than in the other camp, right? If you want to be part of the solution... So think twice before you like it, Absalom and, this one should just be obvious, think twice before you act like in Absalom. It's a lot easier to identify problems than to solve them. Before you undermine others, oh, if I were king, it would be a lot easier. Before you burn it down, think twice. Do you have all the facts? Have you tried to understand why people disagree with you? Where well, your actions that you're going to take actually bring about the changes you're looking for or even move the needle at all. There are those who say the only way to bring about change is to do whatever it takes. No one changed the world more than Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody in history. And what it was one of the things he taught his disciples? He taught them this. Place to write this down if you want. The anointed one taught us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Yeah, be wise as serpents. Recognize what's going on. Call out the Absaloms. And, as you do, be innocent as doves. This section of scripture is filled with examples of people they wanted to be anointed as king. They believed the only way to do that was to, to get there by any means necessary. The title Christ is Greek for the anointed one the one who really was the anointed one, he chose a very different path. Very different path. So here's our last question for you this morning. In a world where more and more people are choosing the way of Absalom, what if they see more and more of us embodying the way of Christ? In a dark room, light shines brighter. Today, you have the opportunity to say yes to the way of Jesus for the first time or the first time again. And we want to make that opportunity physical, visible, tangible. We do that through a sacrament that we call Holy Communion. When we commemorate communion, we commemorate a real event, not a philosophical idea, a real event that represents profound truth, it says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now there's so much that the Bible doesn't say about communion. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't give a specific type of bread or wine. But what it does say is this. Let a person examine themselves. What a great passage to examine ourselves. With all of these highly charged, important conversations, are we acting more like Christ, or are we acting more like like Absalom's? Are we liking people who are more like Absalom or liking people who are more like Christ? could be a great point of reflection for you today. For those who are in per, here in person, you'll have an opportunity. Um, we won't have ushers because we'd rather have it be a decision that you make. So when we're doing those songs, we want to invite you to come and participate. And for those of you at home, if you're able to gather your elements, we invite you to take your bread, your wine, or your juice and engage with us. We also invite you to join us in these prayers. Now, these prayers aren't magic prayers. These aren't the prayers, the one way to pray. What this is is an opportunity for us to join our voices because all of us, all of us have our stuff. Can I get an amen? And so this is one of those reminders that we are all in this together. There is not one of us that gets to to, to claim the moral high ground here. So let's pray these prayers together, then make them your own, and we invite you to join us in this holy moment. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. God, the number of times that I have acted like or liked an Absalom are beyond number. Our world needs less of that and more people who are not only trying to follow you, but have invited your spirit to come in and to change us from the inside out. God, we invite you to do that today. And we pray for our church. We pray for our nation. We pray for the schools and the, the teams and the businesses that we represent We pray, Father, that we could be examples within them of people who are trying to model and live a better way. So now, Father, as we prepare here to sing these songs and participate in this sacrament and make these prayers our own, we join our voices one more time in this prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done